And so this morning we're going to uh, together look at a passage in the book of Exodus. Since I only preach here once every 10 years, I thought, as I'm preaching through Exodus in my congregation, I thought, okay, which one would I pick? Uh, I've enjoyed it so much. We're finishing, we're in the 10th commandment right now. And um, so I, I picked this one passage because it's the first of the, the plagues. And um, if, you, if I can give you a, a, a view of what this plague is all about, then it, it will help you uh, look at the other uh, nine and interpret them as you, in your own reading of Scripture. So I, that's why I, I picked this one passage. Um, but I'd like to, if I can, uh, read to you Romans a section for Romans chapter 1 uh, that I'd like you to have in mind as, as, I, uh, as we take a look at Exodus chapter 7, 14 through 25. I'm going to read to you um, uh, verse 18 um, through verse 25 in Romans chapter 1. I'm reading from the New King James. I, I think maybe some of you have ESV or, or others. That's fine. Um, but this is the Word of God. The Apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, the birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, let's turn together to Exodus chapter 7. I've already mentioned that uh, the passage that we're looking at this morning is uh, the beginning of the, the plague narrative, the plagues, and um, I'll be reading to you just now verses 14 through 25, and this is God's holy word. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood, and the fish that are in the river shall die. The river, river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their waters, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood." 
And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, thank you for the word of truth. And as our Savior Jesus Christ prayed, he asked, Father, uh, sanctify them by your truth. And your word is truth. And, O Lord, we ask that of you now, that you would empower us by your Spirit to uh, behold holy things and to be made holy ourselves as you are holy. And we ask, O Lord, that you would um, bless the reading and the preaching of your word for Jesus' sake, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, this is where the one of the most historic series of events in all of Scripture begin to be recorded. The, the plagues of Egypt begin here. Now, we call them plagues, but in the Hebrew, uh, the word for plague is only used one time in, in all of these narratives, and it's in chapter 11, verse 1. And the meaning of this Hebrew word, translated plague in Egypt, it literally means to strike or to give a blow. And in that light, we, it is like what we are seeing here is the Lord is like a championship boxer who is going to strike Egypt with blow after blow after blow to bring it down. And, uh, but I would point out to you, we are not watching, what we are watching here is not a fight between two well-matched opponents, though that's what Pharaoh thinks, right? Um, you know, I, I like watching boxing and and uh, I've, but I've never seen a, a championship match in which the the one who lost didn't at least get a couple of good blows on the the victor. But what we see here is that despite Pharaoh and Egypt being the world superpower in this day, they never lay a hand on the Lord. They never lay a hand on him. In this fight, the Lord scores every point, and he suffers no setbacks. And it's important for us to recognize that the Lord could have brought Egypt down with one blow, couldn't he? One blow, that's all it, should have, it could have taken if the Lord wanted to. He could have brought down the entire Egyptian empire with one, but he didn't. He's going to use ten blows to do it. And we might ask, why? Why is that? Why does the Lord do it this way? And thankfully, the Word of God actually tells us. Each blow, each plague is actually an individual judgment on one of Egypt's gods. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 4, the Lord tells Moses, 
But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Each blow is a judgment. Of course, it's a judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians who do not obey the voice of the Lord, but it is more than a judgment on them. It is, first of all, a judgment on the gods that Pharaoh and the Egyptians served. And we see this clearly in chapter 12, verse 12, on the night of the Passover, at the time when the Lord is delivering the last blow on Egypt, he says this, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. In chapter 18, verse 10, when Moses meets up with his father-in-law Jethro after they've left Egypt, um, Moses tells his father-in-law what the Lord had done for Israel to deliver them from Egypt. And Jethro, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So again, the plagues are the Lord's judgment on the false gods, the Egypt and the nations around Egypt, the the nations of the earth, the the false gods that they worshipped and served instead of the Lord. And we will see, just as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, worshipping idols is to worship and serve. This is very important is to worship and serve, worshiping idols is to worship and serve creation rather than the creator. And so as we watch the Lord deal death blow after death blow to the idols of the earth, we should not be surprised that the Lord is kicking over some of our idols, some of the created things that we worship and serve rather than our creator. As Exodus teaches us, this is how he sets his children free from the slavish service to the gods of this world. He judges man-made idols that hold us captive so that we can see that they don't have the power and the glory that we attribute to them. And that means that God's judgment in this way is good news. And however... Not everyone in the church agrees, sadly. Uh, Some Christians carp against or they pussyfoot around the the judgments of God in Scripture. And maybe you yourself or Christians you know that are embarrassed that God, to talk about the judgment that God brings to, to the earth and to the idols of the earth. We don't want to offend unbelievers who think that it's not very loving of God to judge. But despite... Christians who say that and their stated motivation uh, to have that mindset is to not be a friend to sinners, right? That's to work against true freedom and true salvation as we see it described for us here in Exodus. And if you think that way, if you speak that way, you're sounding more like the serpent than the Savior. And you might remember What was the first thing that the serpent said in the garden to Eve? What was the first teaching of God that the serpent attacked when he seduced Eve in the garden? Well, the the first 
uh, teaching of God that he contradicted is he said to Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember, he said, you will not surely die. You will not surely die if you eat of that tree. In other words, the first teaching of God the serpent spoke against and denied in order to, to seduce people was to speak against the teaching of Scripture that God is the judge. That God is the judge. And instead, he essentially told Eve there that if you disobey God, you will become like God. Nothing bad will happen. Things, in fact, things will only go bad for you if you obey God's word. He implies that there. He implies that not only does God not have the power to judge you for rejecting him, you have the power to judge him. So you can just wish him away and replace him with whatever you might desire. And there's nothing that he will do about it. Don't worry, all will be well. That's the lie that Paul was speaking of in in Romans chapter 1. So young people, the Lord has said that he will judge those who do not heed his word. That means receive his word, believe his word, do his word. But Satan says, oh, the Lord won't. He is just trying to scare you away, isn't he? God is. He's trying to scare you away from having your best life. So that's the contest here. Who is lying and who is telling the truth? Is it the Lord? Is it Satan and the nations who follow him? Well, the children of Israel are about to see for themselves through the judgment that the Lord will now bring down on the gods and the idols of the earth. And the Lord intends to show both to Pharaoh and the children of Israel, as he indicates here in verse 16, that it is the Lord who is worthy of our worship and our service, not the gods of this world. And to demonstrate this, the Lord commands Moses in verse 15 to meet Pharaoh at the river's bank in the morning. And Moses is to take the rod, the rod that the Lord turned into a serpent. Later it's called the rod of God. He's to take that rod And he is to say to Pharaoh yet again, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Pharaoh believes that the kingdom that he is building is far, far better than anything the Lord is up to. No doubt Pharaoh uh, thought that uh, Israel, the children of Israel, should have considered themselves blessed to have been in his service. And that his kingdom that Pharaoh was building for himself was was greater and better than the kingdom of God. And the Lord is saying, no, people can only be blessed. They can only be free if they are serving me. What does Pharaoh have to offer to those who serve him? Well, the best thing that Pharaoh claimed that he owned and that he had to offer those who served him was the Nile River. Um, Ezekiel chapter 29 verse 3 uh, quotes uh, Pharaoh and one of his proud boasts. And there in Ezekiel 29 verse 3, Pharaoh speaks. He says, my river is my own. I have made it for myself. 
Pharaoh claimed that he was a god. Pharaoh claimed that not only was he a god, but he was the god who created the Nile River, and this was, in fact, his strongest boast. In addition to Pharaoh, the the Egyptians worshipped at least three gods that they associated with the life-giving power of the Nile River, and that river was life-giving. They believed, as Egyptians, that life came from that river. If you think about it, you can see how they might be tempted to believe that. The region of northern Africa, uh, where ancient Egypt was settled, um, it's a desert, right? But the upper and the lower regions of Egypt surrounding that river were well-watered and quite fertile. The, The Nile region of Egypt was at that time the breadbasket of the world. It fed nations. In the spring, what would happen is the Nile River would flood, and uh, as it, the, the waters spilled over the banks of the river, uh, it would bring fresh deposits of fertile and productive soil, and uh, that soil was then used to feed the world. The Egyptians in this ancient time, they actually set their calendar, the start of their year, to the, the time of the year when the Nile flooded. That's where everything began for them. Because the Nile was the source of the irrigation system that that they used and created to uh, grow crops beyond, well beyond the banks of the Nile River. The Egyptians also used the river as one of their main transportation systems. And then you add the fact that the fish that came from that river was the main protein in their diet. You can see why the Egyptians were tempted to view the Nile River as the lifeblood of the nation. And that is why Pharaoh claimed that the river belonged to him. The Nile was the most powerful natural source for good for this world superpower. In fact, humanly speaking, without the Nile River, Egypt never would have become a superpower, the superpower that it was. So it's with that background in mind that we we look at the details of our passage. The Lord told Moses, as I already said, to point it out, to go in the morning to the Nile River where he would meet Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, may have been going to the river to bathe, some people suggest, but more likely he went to the river as most Egyptians did in the morning, not just to get fresh water, but to pay tribute to the river as the main source of the power of the kingdom of Pharaoh. Again, right? The the Nile River, without that river, there would be no kingdom for Pharaoh. There would be no slaves to serve that kingdom. So when Moses told Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go from their service to Pharaoh's kingdom to serve the Lord instead, he was claiming, the Lord was claiming that he was greater than not only Pharaoh, but the Nile itself. The Lord was saying that the Nile and Pharaoh's kingdom is not the source of life. The Lord is the source of life for all people. And he should be worshipped and served above all else. But we're told, as you see there, Pharaoh would not hear. Pharaoh's unbelief and refusal to hear the Lord is symbolic of anyone, including anyone here today, who refuses to heed the word of God. If you do not heed the word of God, 
It's because you believe that you have access to something better, more powerful, more life-giving than the Lord God of creation and the Word of God. If you know of something that is more powerful and life-giving in this created world than the Lord and His Word, will you please share it with me? I would really like to know what that is. And perhaps we'll, we'll start a new religion together. Oh, don't laugh. And this is, in fact, what people do all of the time. Now, maybe you've heard of sociologist Robert Bella. He did a study on this and wrote a book about it called Habits of the Heart. Bella interviewed people all over the United States asking them about their religious views, and, and he was trying to discover what Americans truly believe. And what he concluded was that most Americans believe in what he called Shilaism. Shilaism. Now, the religion of Shilaism is named after a woman named Sheila Larson. She was one of the people that Bella interviewed. And admittedly, Sheila said that she, she constructed her religious beliefs by taking little pieces from over here and little pieces from over there from different religions and philosophies. And so her worldview was a blend of beliefs in, in certain higher powers with uh, religious devotion to the things that gave her the most pleasure. Sheila-ism is what felt right to Sheila, what resonated with her heart and the voice that she heard in her head. And, and that is how, Bella says, most people in America actually come to believe what it is that they believe. That's what their religion is, how it's cobbled together. And sadly, both inside and outside of the church Sheilaism stems from the belief that each of us gets to decide for ourselves what inspires us, what makes me feel alive. And even Christians apply Sheilaism to Christian worship and doctrine. Many Christians' beliefs are just a patchwork of their preferences rather than a well-studied effort to know and to believe only what the Word of God teaches and this is, in fact, the single biggest cause of division among the Christian churches in our nation. We cannot forge unity in the church based on people's preferences and their privately styled beliefs, can we? How is Sheilaism any different, though, from ancient Egyptian worship of Pharaoh and Happy, the god of the Nile? Right, Those Egyptians, they looked to the Nile and they thought, this is powerful, this is life-giving, this is a God I can celebrate alongside of all of the other created things that I believe give me life. In our present age, people find their life and satisfaction in everything from their musical playlist, entertainment, sports, fitness, fashion, relationships, sexual relationships, adventures, hobbies, all of the things that they use to escape the, uh, the, the responsibilities that the Lord tells us life is really all about. Family, work, children, the church. Those other things, those are the things that most Americans, practically speaking, live for and serve because those things are what they believe gives their life purpose and meaning, they make them feel alive. 
Now these things are like Nile rivers that we rise in the morning to pay homage to on our, a daily basis, hoping that they will make us feel alive and that ha, make life feel like it's worth living. Now given the fact that we were created by God to worship and serve Him, we actually should recognize that living for those created things is actually a path to death and destruction. And we need to remember that as we observe the stroke of judgment the Lord brings down on the God of the Nile. Here, Moses says in verse 17, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe, they will hate to drink the water of the river. Verses 19 through 21 record Moses and Aaron's obedience to what the Lord told them to do. Here they are, here's two men obeying, heeding the word of God, and the Lord strikes a death blow on the gods of the Nile. Just as he promised in verses 17 through 18, the Nile turned to blood, where it's described for us there, both the river its streams, and its ponds. Notice in verse 19 that the English translations say uh, both in the buckets or, or the vessels of wood or the pitchers of water or the vessels of water. But I would just point out that buckets and pitchers or vessels, whatever tra- your translation says, that wor- those words are actually not in the Hebrew original. The Hebrew says that there was blood on the wood things and the stone things. And several scholars argue that uh, this might very well be a reference to the wood and the stone carved idols that the Egyptians kept in their houses. And on a daily basis, they would use the water from the Nile River to wash those idols in homage to them. So can you picture it now? Can you picture what it might have looked like on this morning as the as the Egyptians are washing their gods with water from the Nile River, and that water turns to blood, and now those very wooden and stone-carved images are covered in blood. Now, Phil Riken summarizes this, the overall scene like this. He says, With one single blow, the Lord gave them a water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis. And what has the Lord done? The Lord has, with one blow, He has killed the very thing that the Egyptians believed gave them life and purpose. He has taken away their source of life. Verse 25 tells us that this judgment lasted for seven days. And if you're mindful of the number seven being used in Scripture to symbolize uh, perfection or completeness, then we recognize that this is a perfect and complete judgment on these gods. And while it remained, the best the worshipers of the Nile could do, we see in this passage, is try and dig for something life-giving from another source. 
That's what verse 24 tells us that they did. They, they didn't confess that the Lord who struck the river, that He had superior power both to give life and to take life. No, Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians, what do they do? They turn to the magicians. They turn to the magicians who could only, we see here, they could only imitate the power that the Lord had because what did the Egyptians actually need? They didn't need more water turned into blood, did they? They needed the blood turned into water. But we see here that these, these magicians could not do that thing, the very thing that the Egyptians needed most. They, they needed life from the river. But these men did not have the power to do that. They could only imitate God's judgment on the waters, taking what little fresh water remained and turning it into more bloody water. And this is how it always is when people retreat to the power of created things rather than the Creator, when they're searching for life and for help and for rescue. Right? We, we go digging. We're going to go look somewhere else other than the Lord who is speaking to us and telling us that He's actually the one who has life. But we go digging, and what does it do? It only makes things worse. It only exacerbates our problems and the pain of life. And I can't help but think of America when I read this passage. Right, we, we, as a nation, have, we look to the stock market and unemployment numbers, the interest rates. Right? We look to those things as the chief indicators of health and, and life in our society. Right? We often measure our well-being by the national GDP or the rise in wages and our own financial ability to enjoy more leisure time. As a nation, uh, we see abortion and low birth rates and uh, decreased ties to family and church. We see those things as shortcuts to prosperity. I don't know if you can see it in some of the disasters that loom over our nation, but it appears that America's idols are being struck with blows of God's judgment. We know that He is the one who raises a nation up. He is the one who brings it down. And, And the more that people pursue prosperity and pleasure and possessions in the place of God, the more the Lord hands a people over. This is the language of Romans 1, right? He hands a people over to those idols, to those darkened ways of thinking, right? Because we do not hold onto God in our thoughts. I think the proof that God has turned what we were told was life into death is actually all around us if we just look. We look at the culture, we see what is happening, we can see a mountain of human flesh, right, that's being mutilated at the behest of experts who say they have the power to turn boys into girls and the girls into boys. They have that power? Really? We're told that women can be fathers and men can bear children. There is a river of blood flowing from the drug-addicted and depressed lives of young people. Oh, they've been told for generations that they have to turn against father, turn against mother, turn against tradition and ancestors and truth and define those things for themselves. And where has it left them? And young people, I would challenge you 
to identify one value, one value that is promoted by the media, celebrities, or the general mindset of modern American culture, and show me that it is not leaving a train of death and destruction behind it. I don't think you can find it. And that, I would submit to you, is God's gracious judgment. For if he did not give us a foretaste of the judgment to come on the last day by bringing down the created things that we lift up in his place, if he did not judge that, we would continue to replace God with things that cannot save us. In verses 23 and 24, we see a sad summary of what people do when they don't listen to God's message in His judgment on our idols. All it took to strengthen Pharaoh's heart in unbelief was a weak imitation, a cheap magic trick. And his heart is further hardened from heeding the life-giving Word of God. And it's, it's like our experts today who, again, you know, they say gender confusion we gotta, we got to sow that into mind, the minds of three-year-olds or five-year-olds, and that's progress. That's progress. Runaway inflation created by government policy is, is a sign of economic strength. Legalizing the murder of unborn children, even female children, is necessary for women to thrive. Giving addicts crack pipes is a solution to our drug crisis. To address past racism and discrimination, we need to create a new form of racism and discrimination. To fix our crime-infested neighborhoods, we need to defund the police and eliminate law enforcement, shorten the sentences of criminals. Those are the magic tricks we get from our wise man, the wise men who are leading our nation. These are the things that the experts are conjuring up to try and prove that they are more powerful, more trustworthy than the Lord and His Word. But God's Word says those things are actually signs of God's judgment. Again, Romans 1, professing to be wiser than God, what does he say? They became fools. Therefore, I think we are seeing America that God is... as. Paul says there in Romans 1, giving a nation up to uncleanness and vile passions. Now sadly, when God hands the people over to the destruction that idols breed, people, they often double down, as we see the Egyptians doing here. They start digging for water and life somewhere else, right? The Lord's judgment dries up the benefits they receive from their former gods, and they start seeking life from any other source, any other source than God who actually gives life. Have you noticed this? Now, maybe it's people's sad attempts, the sad effects of their idolatry, and what do they do? They, they go into more idolatry. Now, maybe it, it's uh, fixating on some new thing. Maybe it's a vow to, to do better next time. Maybe um, it's going from one failing idolatrous relationship to another failing idolatrous relationship. But the only way to live 
The only way to live after God has judged the idols that you try to draw life from is to not, not to start looking for another one. It's to repent of worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator so that then we can come to Him. And we can only discover then truly that to truly live is to worship and serve the true and living God who made us for Himself. Now, there's countless ways that He proves that if we live for anything but Him, the, the things that we live for will, will indeed fail us. They will enslave us. They'll bring death into our lives. They will make our lives stink. But when God shows that to us, just recognize that He is being gracious when He judges our idols. And just think about how gracious He is in this. As the Lord deals a blow to the created things that we put above and beside Him, He is at the same time calling us to come to Him for life and to find eternal life in knowing and serving Him. In chapter 12, as as Israel is leaving uh, the land of Egypt, we're told that there is a mixed multitude who went with them. There were some Egyptians that heard God's message from the blows of judgment that He brought down on their idols. And they said, we will go with the true and living God. We're going to go with you. And they went up with the people of God out of Egypt. The first blow of judgment the Lord brought on Egypt was to turn their false fountain of life into blood. What was the first sign that Jesus performed when he came to call people to find life in him? The first sign in John 2, we see he turned... Uh, water into wine to gladden the hearts of sinners. And it shows us something. As Isaiah says it in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, he says that judgment is the Lord's strange work. Judgment is his strange work. Why? Because he delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. And if you try to find life in anything else, it is a mercy of God that he judged that false God and that idol. But what would he have you do? He would have you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses struck the Nile with a piece of wood, turned it to blood, and proved that those false gods could not give life. By the hands of wicked men, God the Father struck his son with a piece of wood. And by the blood that flowed from our Savior Jesus Christ, the true and living God forgives sins and all who come to Him through Jesus Christ, and He gives them life. What created thing do you serve above and beside the Lord that gives to you and loves you like that? None, right? There is none. And that is to show that there is none like the Lord in all the earth. And His Word teaches us that you will never be free, you will never be satisfied, you will never truly be alive until you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you drink from Him as the fountain of living waters. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank You 
uh, for your judgment and for the way that you expose the idols of our hearts, how you show us, too, that, that we enslave ourselves by serving and worshiping created things rather than you, O oh Lord, how we have been fools to do this very thing. And so we thank you for the Word of God and this remembrance that we have of what you did to the land of Egypt and how you set your people free by judging the idols that they were enslaved to serve. And may it be in our lives that we, being set free by the power of the gospel and the work of our Savior Jesus Christ, that we do not enslave ourselves again, but that we live in the liberty that the Lord Jesus Christ died to give us. And so we ask in his name that you would more and more separate us from uh, the things that we put in your place and our heart's devotion to those things. May it be replaced with a love for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name.